Good evening. All right, let's take a look at uh, Jeremiah. You know, um, the typical, I say typical, I've noticed that the trend in modern churches is to have uh, multiple pastors, um, two, three, four pastors. And, you know, I'm told that that's a great idea because, you know, it gives the, you know, each pastor more and more time to prepare. I promise I do not need time to repair. In fact, to repair I do, but prepare. Um, I mean, like last week we were supposed to meet, having two extra weeks to do this just made me go further and further. And it's just never any end to it. So I would never want that much time to prepare. Um, excuse, yeah, I'd get it all off the Internet. Yeah, if only. That would... Maybe if there was anything good on the internet to get, I might, but uh, anyway, I don't need two weeks to prepare, but because I had two weeks, I mean, I was working up to the last minute on this, I, and, and I was finished last week, ready to teach on last Wednesday, so anyway, um, I'm sorry? Well, there's no way I can go through each chapter, every verse by verse, but you'll note if you've read this is that it's very repetitious, and, uh, but that's true with all the prophets. The prophets are saying three things. You have sinned, repent, and if you do, I'll bless you. They all say that. Now, that's not an excuse not to read it. Landscape's a three-point to, to remember that there's, it's God's Word. Make sure you read it. Do the best you can. Um, if you're trying to read the Bible in a year and then I gave you four more chapters to read, that's okay. You can do it. If you're too busy to read it, you're busier than God intended for you to be. So uh, keep on trucking through. It's okay. Um, but I have gone through and, uh, and summarized so that I don't uh, have to hit every verse in each one, and it is repetitious. So let's take a look. Um, we'll look at um, some, quick, some quick, fast facts on Israel. Uh, you'll notice the green and the, the purple. The green is the northern kingdom. If you imagine this all one color, that's ancient Israel. That's Israel under the, the monarchy of Saul and David and Solomon, what we call the united monarchy. It was Israel. Um, after Solomon left, Solomon introduced pagan worship into Israel in his latter years with all of his wives. And those, that pagan idolatry turned in the kingdom into a split. And so Israel was in the north, Judah was in the south. If you don't know that, then you're going to be confused through all the prophets and especially reading, uh, say, First and Second Kings, because it goes from what's going on in the north to what's going on in the south, what's going on in the north, south, it goes back and forth. So it's very good to know that. Uh, to understand what's happening. Why did it happen? Well, in the days of Jeremiah, uh, the one nation of Israel had split into two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Um, Israel in the north in Jeremiah's day is gone. There is no Israel. Uh, they, are, they have been interbred with the Assyrians. The Assyrian empires come in, removed them. Judah in the south is there. But Jeremiah does prophesy against and to the restoration of the northern kingdom. Uh, Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. under Sargon II by the Assyrians. Uh, Judah would eventually be conquered in 586 by the Babylonians, but in Jeremiah's day, he, there's still hope. Jeremiah was preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah beginning in 627 B.C., and he was there until their captivity in 586 B.C. and then even beyond that. We summarized last, uh, last week in this is that though God had loved Israel, Israel speaking of the northern kingdom, she fell away from him. And their relationship is depicted as that of a bridegroom and a bride. We saw that last week. Again, this is summary. Though God was faithful, to, or two weeks ago, though God was faithful to Israel, she was unfaithful to him. 
Forsaking the Lord, she defiled the Holy Land. Defiling the Holy Land was her way, or at least what she did was she, meaning Israel, is that they worshiped other gods. When you go away from God, you commit adultery against God. You're going to other gods. And in so doing, it's God's land. Be like saying, here's a man, the man owns a home, and he uh, marries a woman. He brings the woman into his house. She's blessed in his house. She brings another man into the house, commits adultery, defiles the whole house. And that's the way he's speaking in, in, uh, regarding the land of, of promise, a land of milk and honey. Israel's leaders, which were her priests, teachers, rulers, and prophets, led the way to apostasy. These people are supposed to lead the way to God. They led them to fall away. The result was that the Lord had a case against Israel for violating the Mosaic Covenant. God had grounds for divorce, and in 722, God divorced Israel. That's what he says. He divorced them. Is there, should, should there ever be a divorce? Well, when there's unfaithfulness, even among humans, when unfaithfulness, a night, a one-night horrible stand that someone does and commits adultery, if there's repentance, please forgive me, I was wrong, it never happens again, yes, forgive, move on the best you can, forgive. But if it continues, if it's perpetual, that's grounds for divorce. No repentance, perpetual, you move on. Sad, but it's... It is what the provision that Jesus himself gives. And then the last passage, last part of Jeremiah chapter 3, 1 to 5, which is where we came to the end last week, last time. If a couple divorced uh, and the wife married another man, she was prohibited by law from ever being reunited with their first husband. And this, is come, this comes straight from Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 to 4. In other words, you can't leave your husband, marry another, divorce him, and come back to your husband. That was forbidden in Israel. Yet, this is what God is going to do, the provision he's going to make for Israel, sending her away and then bringing her back in his mercy. Both Israel and Judah had separated from Yahweh, from their God, their covenant God, and had lived as prostitute. That's what Jeremiah says in, in 2.20. With many lovers, that means she had many other gods, uh, and such actions were defiling. God, however, promised not to reject Israel forever, for Jeremiah later recorded God's promise of Israel's national restoration under what we know to be called the New Covenant. God says in the New Covenant, I will go get you. I will bring you back. I will make you do this. I will make you not force them to believe, but turn their hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of uh, softened hearts, as he did with us. That's why we're Christians. You know that. Because God came in and turned our minds, turned our hearts to himself. That's why he gets all the glory. We didn't say, I have decided to follow Jesus. God decided for us and brought us to himself so that he gets all glory. So as we move forward in our passage tonight, we go through chapter 3. First part, I'm just going to read 3, 1 to 5. Uh, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Okay, that's what I said. That's Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert, and you have polluted a, polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. And so, uh, verse 4, have you not just now called to me? Like a teenager, I put it out here, like a teenager needing money. That's when teenagers call. Dad, Dad, how are you doing? What do you want? Now, my kids don't do that, but you at least haven't. They haven't yet. And that's what they're doing. You're calling to me, Father. 
Father, we need you. And that's why I wrote that, like a teenager needing money. My father, you are the friend of my youth, or are you the friend of my youth? Will he be angry forever? No. God will not be angry forever. Then he could bring no one into his kingdom with him. So let's do some overview. And by the way, how I do this is one of the, one of the ways I, I was teaching the, in a teacher's class last year on overviewing the Bible. And so I'm just going paragraph by paragraph and summarizing what's here uh, and bringing it down into a couple of sentences. And that's what I have just when we overview this. So in Jeremiah 3, 6 to 11, God gave Israel a certificate of divorce after she departed from worshiping him in favor of idols. Now, try your best you can as we go through this to put that into a modern day scenario. Uh, that, that's the point, kind of see if, if the people then are the same as people are today. God gave her opportunities to return, that is to repent. And by the way, that word return is used throughout. If you read Jeremiah and you underline every time you hit return, 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 um, it's shuv, S-U-B. The B sounds like a V in, in Hebrew, shuv, shuv, shuv. And, and Jeremiah uses it in many different ways, very poetically. Shuv, if you don't return, God gave her opportunities to return or to repent but she always refused. Judah saw, remember, there's Israel in the north. Israel's gone. God divorced her. They're Assyrian now. They're called Samaritans, part Jew, part Gentile. Judah in the south saw all that God did uh, with Israel and how God responded to Israel's sin. Yet Judah sinned even worse. So Israel was called faithless Israel. And yet faithless Israel proved herself more righteous than what Jeremiah calls treacherous Judah. Treacherous means you're a traitor, treasonous. She was just faithless in the north. In the south, there's, there's hey, we saw what happened, and we're going to do it anyway. There's worse in the south, in Judah. In Jeremiah 3, 12 to 18, though faithless Israel had been given a certificate of divorce from God, God in his mercy still called her back. And that's what Jeremiah's doing. He's calling Israel. Though he's in Judah, the one that got the certificate of divorce, he's calling her back. She needed only to recognize her sin and repent. Isn't that still true today? God will bring her to Zion, Zion being uh, a synonym for Jerusalem, and restore her. All she needed to do was repent, and God would bring her back into the covenant community. And the covenant community is down south in Jerusalem, Zion. He would restore her, and then he would give her shepherds after his own heart. Now, this is the promise of God. It will happen. It hasn't, but it will. This is what we believe to be, uh, will occur, I should say, in the millennium when Jesus returns. The ark of the Lord is said to be forgotten. That's a good thing. If you're reading that haphazardly, you're thinking, oh, they've forgotten the ark. Even Israel today, that's what they think about. They think about the restored temple they're going to build. If you ask any Jew, at least the ones I've asked in Israel, it's what are you going to do with the ark? Because if you go into Israel, they've got this called the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a place where they have all the artifacts that are ready to be put into the new temple. In fact, like this little podium here, this is they have the, the altar of incense. This kind of looks like what the altar of incense looks like. Okay, you walk into the, into the, uh, the holy place, and then there's a table of showbread, and there's the lamp, and then right before you get to the curtain, which separates you from the Ark of the Covenant, there's a table, this little podium type thing, uh, altar of incense. Pull back the curtain, and you don't want to do that. But if you did, there's the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. No one does. And so Israel is trying to build this temple. They have all the artifacts. They've got the menorah, the big lampstand. They've got the table. They've got the altar of incense. They've got the burnt offering outside, the big barbecue pit that's outside where all the blood offerings are given. 
That blood is brought into the altar of incense. You pour it on the coals, and what comes up? This smoke of worship unto God. That's all there. When you ask a Jew, well, where's, where's the Ark of the Covenant? you know where that is? No, but when we build it, God will show us then. That's where the Ark will be. Okay, well, good enough. That's all you got because you don't know where it is. The Ethiopians think that it's in their place. Why do the Ethiopians think this? Because it is believed that Solomon slept with Queen of Sheba, had a baby when she went back, and this is in the line of the Messiah, and he just said, oh, by the way, here, take the Ark with you. And uh, keep that for a while. The Ethiopians say that they have it. They might. Who knows? <laughs> Stranger things have happened. But the point being is that Israel is concerned with the ark. And Jeremiah is saying there's going to be a day when you're no longer concerned about the ark. That's a box that represents God. You're going to see God. He's going to be here. Ezekiel 43, 7 says, This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of the kings when they die. This is the hope in all the prophets looking to the day the Messiah returns. This is what will happen. Because mind you, everything Jeremiah says about Israel in the prophecies here is still true. It could still be said to them today as we go through and look at this tonight. Beginning in verse 19 to 25, God desires to give his people all his blessings forever. Yet Israel desires her own way, spiritual adultery. Mind you of a child you may have birthed. You want to give your blessings, but this child, no, I'm doing my own thing. Usually God gives us a child that, that wants to do everything that we want them to do. And it makes you think, I must be a pretty good mother. I must be a pretty good father. Let's have another baby. And then God says, ah, that's why we have two babies. But that's why most families have 2.5 kids. You know, that's the average kid. You know, you get the second one, you go, no, no. And then somewhere down the line, God says, oh, you're getting three. You didn't know it, but you're getting three. Just a joke. I mean, <laughs> Israel weeps as a result of her sins, having perverted her way, yet God's answer to them uh, for, to, to repent is said no. Well, we don't want to. We, it's like we want to stay in our own ways and suffer. Jeremiah then paints an idealistic picture of what it would look like when and if Israel would return to God, the God of her salvation. Sadly, they still to this day have failed to do so. I love the picture he paints there around verse 25. Here's what it could look like. Could be wonderful. And you might think of your own children and say, you know, if you would come back, if you would give up the drugs, if you would give up the, the whatever you're into and come back, I, I could, and I, this is just from a case study I did years ago when I was a counselor. The father said if I could get them off of, it was heroin, I'd get them off heroin and I'd bring them back in my home and I would give them a place in the home and I was mediating between these two family and, and, the, and the heroin addict. And uh, just, I'd let him be in my home. I'd, I've got the man owned a company, said he can come to work for me. He can do this. I'll get him back on their feet. I'll, I'll, bygones will be bygones. Let's just get back. So I take that offer over here. Yeah, but the heroin addict wants heroin. And, and I know it's an addiction. I know it's a disease. But uh, it's kind of the same thing with, with any sin. Uh, it's God saying, I will give you this. You surrender to me. I will give this to you. No, no. Mm. Not a good deal. We want to do what we want to do. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, God's grace is once again seen in the prophet's call to repentance. You see that over and over. It's just repetitious. And by the way, this is what prophets and preachers are supposed to do. Uh, that's Jeremiah, as I've told you, is my hero. He's one of the reasons I became a preacher. Um, the first time I was reading him, you know, when I was a child even, I, he just, something about Jeremiah. I remember the first sermon I ever learned. I was, it was like 1977. I remember Cliff Harrington. 
at First Baptist Church, Conroe, Texas, preaching on Jeremiah. My, my mom talking to me about Jeremiah, Jeremiah this and Jeremiah that. Huh, this Jeremiah intrigues me. And, you know, I, I didn't remember a lot of reading when I was in, in 1977. I was eight years old or, or seven years old, something like that. Um, but he's always intrigued me. When I did start reading him, I, I just, I, I got it. He's constantly calling out, and you see a great passion in Jeremiah that you don't see in other prophets, or at least it's different in theirs. But what he keeps doing is calling them to repentance. Stop doing what you're doing. No one likes to be told that. Uh, if you tell someone to stop doing what they're doing, you are telling them what? You're accusing them of something. You're wrong. Nobody wants to do that, folks. There are entire seminary programs at the modern seminaries and Bible colleges that will take you through, you will get a degree in not doing that and how to make the, your churches feel good. Don't tell them they're sinners. Don't ever tell someone they're sinners. That's, that's offensive. That is the biggest bunch of nonsense. That's not what we as preachers are supposed to do. And imagine, just put that to a doctor. Um, Jonathan, your kidney doctor, you know, come in. Hey, you know, Caesar kidneys are in failure and uh, um, you need dialysis and, you know, you might not live another two or three months. But Jonathan, hey, he just wants to make people feel good. <laughs> Dr. Smith going, you know what? I saw your kidneys and they're both there. And, and I, was, I was looking at this guy the other day, and there's a lot worse. And, and, you know, I see some good things here. What kind of a doctor does that? And they die two months later. That's what we're after here. People are dying. The prophet is supposed to tell people, you're in sin, repent, move this way, return to God. May not be uplifting, but whoever said that we're supposed to be uplifted all the time. I mean, I know it feels good to feel good, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels good just to know we were wrong and we can do something about it. Repentance is to be done in truth according to God's standard, not our, our legalisms. We tell people that they're sinners, not that we don't like what they're doing per se. It's not simply a changing of bad behavior, but of the heart. And Jeremiah makes that distinction. God makes that distinction. Some people can turn away from their ways. The one I was working with was, okay, I'll just stop doing heroin. I'll stop doing heroin. You know, he could have, could have said that, I suppose. I'll stop doing this. But if it's not from the heart, then it's, it's not going to work, is it? it? It's a change of heart. We try to preach to the heart, not go tell everybody you need to do more and do better and stop doing bad. It's preach to the heart of the matter and get people to repent, come to know Christ. Um, if you come to know Christ, by the way, if you're having a rocky marriage, your, your problem is not to read a self-help book and get better. That might help. But work on the heart, and a good marriage kind of happens. I, I was, I say kind of, I hate saying kind of. A good marriage happens. Um, I was reading Sad Story of the Dead, uh, Drew Carey. I mean, you know who Drew Carey is. It just happened to be in the news. I was reading a little article on him. He's been suicidal, and, and he said, the way I do it is I read as many self-help books as I can, and they work. <laughs> and I thought, I, I guess they can work, but why not change the heart? Go to the heart of the matter. You know, instead of cleaning the wound every day and putting a new bandage on it, get you an antibiotic and kill the germs that are, that are fueling it. See, I'm talking like a doctor now, Jonathan. Failing to repent will only bring about God's wrath in chapter 4, which will go like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. I should have closed the quotation on that in chapter 4, verse 4. This is once again 
repent or God's wrath will go out like fire and consume. Beginning in verse 5, God's wrath is pictured in verses 5 to 9 as a coming storm, a nation from the north which will devastate the land. No one wants to hear that. Verse 9 says, It will be in that day, declares Yahweh, that the heart of the king of the heart of the princes will perish. The heart of the king and the heart of the princes. The king is supposed to be the, the, the strongest, the bravest, and his princes their heart will perish and the priests will be appalled and the prophets will be astonished. Jeremiah responded strangely, ah, sovereign Lord, or ah, Yahweh, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem saying, you will have peace whereas a sword touches the throat. Did you pause when you saw that? If you're reading it? Because you should have. Wait a minute. Is Jeremiah accusing God of deceiving his people? Is there an accusation here? Perhaps. Why would he say that? Does Jeremiah think God has, has God told, or let me put it this way. Does Jeremiah think that God has told the people you're going to all prosper and be great? You're going to have your best life now. <laughs> Jeremiah knows that God has never said that. But the people believe it. Why? False prophets. False prophets. Mm -hmm. Then and now. And they, they make people believe something that isn't true. A best life now, for instance. That God wants this and he wants that. And if you give $1,000, he give you $10,000. He's just going to bless you to no end. Those are lies. It's not hard to understand that they believed then, how duped they were then, because people today are duped now. How has God somehow deceived them? By allowing the false teachers. Folks, I will say, and I have said this for years, it's gotten me in trouble, especially when we first started the church, I preached this like everybody understood it, but um, you might not. But those false teachers out there that are everywhere, that are teaching people these ridiculous doctrines, from speaking in tongues to believing in a health and wealth gospel and everything in between, that is God's judgment. You say, well, how can those people stay in that church? They're under God's judgment. Those churches are filled with preachers telling people what their itching ears want to hear. This is God's judgment on them. Don't miss that. This isn't God saying, oh, goodness, what have I done? Oh, me, oh, me. You know, that's us saying, oh, my God. God says, oh, me, oh, me. <laughs> I just made that up, just came to me. So, because... He's in control. It's not him having lost control. That's God's judgment, false teaching, allowing these people. Now, yep. Just a quick, God's judgment on the preacher or on the people? Yes. Both? Yeah, the preacher is the conduit through which God is judging the people who are listening to him. Yeah. In 4.11 to 14, more wrath is promised. You just keep seeing it over and over. This time as a scorching wind that blows in the desert. Um. Ezekiel 17.10 says the hot, dry east, or this is really what you would get from this, is this hot, dry wind. You think, well, what's the big deal? Earlier it was a, an army coming in from the north, and he's predicting the Babylonians coming in. Here it's described as a scorching wind called a sriracha or a sirocco. Uh It blows from the desert, causes serious difficulties. Uh, it is not used to winnow. If you, back then, you want to winnow your grain, you would go on what's called a threshing floor. You go up on a on a hill, 
where the, because you know, the higher you go up, wind is, is greater there. You would take your, your kernels of corn or wheat and you would put them in a pile and you would take your pitchfork and you would throw them up in the air and let the kernels fall to the ground and the wind would blow the chaff away. That's what you did. That's, that's the threshing floor. The wine press is down low. You don't need to be out in the wind for that. But here, it's not that. It's a huge wind. It's not a breeze blowing the chaff away. Uh, you can't use it to winnow because the wind is too strong. Instead, the sriracha could wither vegetation and cause extreme discomfort for those who had to endure it. Also, Ezekiel compared Babylon's invasion to the coming of the east wind. So you see east wind, you think, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. East wind on a hot day? No, this is a, a, a sriracha. New word for you, right? And then there's another call to repent is given with another picture of God's wrath coming from the north, which is Dan, the northernmost tribe, coming like a cloud. You think well, clouds aren't that bad, but imagine the dense cloud really talking about an army of people. And that's what the Babylonians were going to do. And by the way, when he's talking about this army from the north, if you look at your map, you're going, well, Babylon isn't to the north. Babylon is due east. So isn't it east? Yeah, it's east. Uh, but to get them, they would have to come across the Arabian Desert. No one does that. So you go up the Euphrates, and you come down from the north. All, all armies would do it. Assyria had come down from the north. The interesting thing is that army from the north isn't even an army yet. Now, the Babylonians were an army. They were a group of people under the Assyrians. But they didn't become a great power until 626 B.C., and this is not quite yet. So Jeremiah is imagining this army from the north before it's actually intact. Their first king was a man named Nabopolassar. Uh, Nabopolassar had a son named Nebuchadnezzar. And he became that great king that came in and invaded. The rest of chapter 4 is God laments through Jeremiah over the anguish of his soul for the devastation of Israel. Uh, and that brings him pain. This is God receiving pain. God laments through Jeremiah over the anguish of his own soul. God's soul. Not Jeremiah's. God is anguished over this. Israel... Uh, as a nation, are simple-minded with no understanding. They're wise to do evil, but ignorant about what is good. This is what is said. Jeremiah sees the uncreation of the world. I love this phrase. Tohu vabohu. Tofu vabohu means formless and void. Where do you remember that? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. Genesis 1-2. He imagines an uncreation. Same word, same two words. Tohu vabohu. So he sees that. God is going to uncreate. God's going to devastate what he made beautiful. This is the description of how God's wrath will devastate the land. I capitalize land because it's the promised land. Something that we see in the book of Revelation. You just see it get worse and worse and worse. A half of mankind or a third of mankind dies. A fourth of mankind dies. Over and over. People are dying. Blood is everywhere. Blood rises up to a deep level. There's a deep end of blood. At the end, when Jesus, right before Jesus returns, the earth is messed up. God has to recreate. It's being uncreated for him to recreate it. In chapter 5, as Abraham bargained with God. In fact, let's read that one. Chapter 5, verse 1. Too good. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And look now and take note and seek in her open squares. If you can find a man... If there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. Does that remind you of something else in the Bible? Abraham standing there with God. Genesis 18. Lord, if I may, if I may. If you can find 50 people, will you destroy it? Nope. If I may, 45, I won't. If I may, if you find 40, then he goes in increments of 10 now. 
since I still got you, what if you find 30? If I find 30, I won't destroy him. Please don't destroy me, Lord. How about 20? He knows there's not 20 people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, if I find 20, I won't destroy him. Just one last time, Lord. If you find 10, if I find 10, I will not destroy it. Did he find 10? This is the same way. God is saying, just show me one person, one person. Give me one reason not to destroy this land. No one is found, and those who say they're righteous lie. Jeremiah thought that the only that only the poor, he argues God and says, it's only the poor and ignorant that are this way. But what if we go out and find the rich and the educated? No, they weren't there either. As a result of finding no one righteous and faithful, God's devastation would resemble a lion, a wolf, and a leopard preying on the helpless and the great wide open. I imagine um, in our day, if you go out into the great wide open like this, you're going to have a weapon of some sort, a gun, at least a knife. And if a wild animal should come upon you, you load, lock, shoot. Then there wasn't anything. You got caught out in the open, and there's a lion, a leopard, a wolf. You're toast. You are their meal. And this is the picture that God is saying. This is what I'm going to do to you. It doesn't seem to frighten anyone except Jeremiah. But there's no one there. So because there's no one faithful, this is what I'm going to do. It's what I'm going to send. Folks, are you thinking about our modern world? God hasn't changed. God asked why he should pardon Israel since he had given her everything in chapter 5, verses 7 to 13. Why should I pardon her? She has everything. In spite of all God gave them, they lusted after each other like lusty horses. God asked, shall I not avenge myself? And he does. That's what he uses, lusty horses. Horses looking for more other horses to, you know, who are in church. Speaking of Israel as a vineyard with ripe grapes, God goes through them and makes a complete ruin of them. Only a remnant will remain. I'm going to destroy all of them, but you keep saying, but not absolutely all of them. I've got to keep a remnant. Always note that theme when you read the, the prophets. God destroying, you'll always see that theme, a remnant. God has to leave a remnant in order to fulfill his promise to Israel to bring them to fruition in the end times. If you wipe them all out, you can't bring your promise to fruition. So there's always a remnant. The nation believed then, as it does now, that calamity will not come from God. You know, we being pro-Israel at this church, every church should be pro-Israel. Um, we should not be anti-Arab. Do not be anti-Arab. We're not anti-Arab. Might be anti-Hamas. But you'll note in the Bible that every time an oppressing nation is on Israel, it's because they're being disciplined. They're being disciplined. So we might take up for Israel and say, well, but Israel is being disciplined. They deserve everything that's coming to them right now. It sounds horrible, but that's the way it always is. They have still rejected their Messiah. They, have, they are still guilty of having him put to death. The, the generation of Israelites that live today, oh, they didn't kill Christ. But by not receiving him as their Messiah, they're just as guilty. Calamity won't come from God. We're Israel. The prophets speak only, when, uh, speak only, I should have put, like windbags. And the people love it so. They loved it then. They love it now. Just tell us what we want to hear. The rest of chapter 5 is God's wrath is spoken of again by a nation coming to attack Israel. That's why I said I'm going to put all these chapters together because each night I'm going to say the same thing in these four chapters. Aren't you glad? 
My wife told me last time, she said, are you going to go a little faster? <laughs> this is depressing. I said, sure. <laughs> I had every intention of that. No, she's right. Um, I had hoped to get through the minutia and all of Jeremiah, but he says it over and over. So again, God's wrath is spoken. A nation's going to come get her. Verse 17 of chapter 5, they will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. That's a preacher preaching hell and damnation and people going away going, we're not going back to that church. <laughs> in spite of this, God will leave a remnant. God laments this people who have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear a stubborn and rebellious heart to sin. God laments these people. This is all they want to do. This is all people today want to do. Who comes to a church? Who looks for a church that calls out sin? Maybe you did. What are your kids thinking? You should talk to your children. Um, because you Bible church attenders who bring kids, your kids, 90% of them are not into this and are not going to come back. And I can tell you that over the past 24 years of experience. Of the kids that grew up here that we baptized, that were all fired up for a while, some, they don't, many of them do not even attend church. They had a great time here. Again, they got baptized. Ask them, what, what do you think about this? Are you just here because of me? What are you going to do when you go off to college? Uh, some of your kids are just very compliant. Uh, but uh, when they get on their own, they want nothing to do with what's going on here. They will have heard it. And that's really all you can do as a parent. Give them that. Put it in them. That's why I, I quiz kids, and I get worse and worse. I want before I'm going to baptize you. I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to put you off. Good, because I want somebody that says, "Hey, you, Dad, Mr. Waldy, I want to be baptized." All right, tell me why. I had one guy that came here years ago. First time he had been here, a young man, probably 22 years old. He said, "I was very soft spoken." He said, I, "I want you to baptize me." I said, "Well, I only baptize people I know." He said, "That's not in the Bible though," and I want you to baptize me. And I just sat there and looked at him. He looked at me. He said, I'm telling you, I know Christ, and I've listened to you on the radio. I want you to baptize me. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't. And he just kept looking at me. Okay. <laughs> That's persistence. It wasn't backing away. Oh, I don't want to upset the pastor. Or I don't want to get in his face. Or I don't want to disagree with the pastor. Disagree with the pastor. Um, but be right. I mean it. Be right. Know what you're talking about. Push it. But I, I want, there's a world you're going to go off into. And if you're going to get baptized here by me, I don't want you to become like some of the other people that I have baptized here who are off rejecting the Lord today or have no time to go to church, no time whatsoever for the things of God, and yet they gave me a testimony and said, I want to be baptized. That bugs the heck out of me. Um, I lament that. Uh, and God does as well. Stubborn, rebellious hearts to sin. Their iniquities have negated all of God's blessings. Their teachers lie and the people love it. And then in chapter 6, God speaks extravagantly about the coming destruction of Judah and his people. There it is again. Every chapter starts off every chapter. Same thing. The wrath of God on display with the total annihilation of Jerusalem. The word of God to Israel then as now is something they care nothing about taking no delight in it. Now, I know it's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. But you will notice when you read Psalm 119, what does he constantly say? David writing it. He does love the word word, but more specifically, what part of the word does he love? 
your statutes, your commandments. Now, how many times do you sit back and read the commandments and go, I love this. I want to read the commandments again. I want to read Leviticus again. We should try to plow through Leviticus best we can in our Bible in a year program. Those laws represent the holy God. David dwelt upon them and said, I love your law, and wrote ad nauseum. One psalm for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters. Eight lines, I love your statutes, your ordinances, your law. Love them, I dwell on them. Do you? These people don't. Big difference between what David was saying and what Israel then and now thinks. They take no delight in it. What about you? You take delight in God's word or is it just too long for you? Yeah, it's just too big of a book. I got other things to do. Entire families, fathers, mothers, and children are set to be destroyed in Israel from the least to the greatest of them. This is, these are not my words. These are all summaries from the chapters. Everyone is greedy for gain, lying to each other, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, and living with no shame of sin. That, that's what we have today. Peace, peace. Some people just say that to themselves. I don't, want, don't, don't bother me with truth, facts. I just want to live in peace. I want to be in my little place, and as long as my life is peace, 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 and you give me a preacher that, that preaches peace. I got stuck on a plane one time with the former uh, governor of Kentucky. John Brown is his name. Um, and I was a, it was a Ph.D. student at the time, and he asked me a question. And uh, he told me who he was and all. Pretty cool, sitting next to the former governor of Kentucky. And uh, um, when I told him what I did and who I was, that was it. That's all I got in. All I got in, oh, yeah, I believe, too. I'm a Christian, too. I believe in positive thinking. I believe in this and positive this, positive that. That's what your ministry is about, too, is it? Oh, yeah, no, I believe in this, and he's just off, and I couldn't get anything in, and we had 35 minutes left in the trip. And he's just going on and on about positiveness and being positive, being positive. And I was just waiting to just say, yeah, but how can we be positive in light of sin? And do you understand what happened at the cross? That's not positive, but that brought, but I couldn't get that out. Never could. Never got the gospel in. God was laughing at me. I thought I was, hey, I've got the former governor here. We're going to change the world right here on this airplane. <laughs> Just, he wasn't listening. But it was all about positive thinking. Norman Vincent Peale garbage and, and uh, uh, power positive thinking. That's what he loved. It, peace, peace when there is no peace. Living with no shame of sin. Is that not our day today? People sinning with no shame? And the rest of chapter 6 is God tells Israel to inquire about the ancient past their forefathers followed uh, so that they can find rest for their souls. Consider and, and ask about your ancient fathers that did follow me. Notice their way of life. Uh, when you do and follow their way, you'll find rest for your souls. But they refused then as now. So God makes it clear that judgment is imminent. Although Israel brings incense to God, this one always kills me. Um, Incense to God is worship. And often they offer burnt offerings, that's worship. Sacrifices, that's worship. God says, these are not pleasing to me. In Amos, he says, I hate the music of your festivals. I hate your burnt offerings. So think about that. That is people coming to church, singing their songs. By the way, I told you that uh, a guy that comes here used to go to the local Methodist church, and he was talking about some of the songs they sing. I think I was telling you that. Uh, he said, yeah, we used to sing U2 
Uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I told you that they sang Britney Spears. He goes, no, it was the Goo Goo Dolls. They sang songs in church from the Goo Goo Dolls. Now, even if you don't know who they are, the name tells you everything. <laughs> That's what they sing in church, and they call it a worship service? People coming and giving money, whatever it might be, God hates this. You can come and go through the motions. You can give money. You can sing your songs and go away thinking, I worship God. No, you can't. We either worship God the way he has called to be worshiped or we're worshiping ourselves. That's the ones you leave and the preacher asks you, did you have fun? Did you have fun? Did you have fun worshiping yourself, doing what you wanted to do? Listening to my funny stories? No, this is not pleasing to God. In fact, there's a, there's a great story, great, it's tragic, in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 6, where David is carrying the ark from point A to point B. But he's not carrying it, is he? He's decided that rolling it on a cart is better than the way God has ordained it be carried, like Indiana Jones did. You know, if you saw it, they, they ran the poles through it. It has to be carried by Levites, carried. Because if it's rolling along, you know, I'm guessing they didn't have paved roads back then. And it hits a bump, then what's going to happen to the ark? It's going to be like your ice cooler falling off with all the contents falling onto the ground. The presence of God falling onto the dirt. Well, that's exactly what happened. The oxen stumbled, the cart, bum, 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 bum. It's about to go onto the ground, and this guy named Uzzah thinks in his mind, split second, I'll catch the ark. My hands are cleaner than the dirt. What happened to Uzzah when he touched it? Um, the parallel story in First Chronicles 17 tells us that there were 30,000 musicians going before David carrying the ark that day. Musicians playing music. So imagine Mormon Tabernacle Choir, beautiful music, everyone playing in concert. Everybody's having a great time. Oh, Lord, aren't we worshiping you? And God sitting in heaven, shaking his head. Isn't that what's going on today? People worshiping their way, carrying the cart, carrying the ark their way, going to church, doing what they want to do. And God, this sudden burst of anger. No. John chapter 4 I believe it's verse 20, 21, 22, 23, where John or Jesus tells the woman at the will, God the Father seeks those, is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. Truth in their spirit, not in their rituals. In truth, not the way they want to do it. God is seeking those. I want to be that guy. Do you? Israel was not and is not. And yet they go to worship. As a result, God plainly tells Jeremiah that he is laying stumbling blocks before his people so that they will stumble and perish. It, this is God saying, I am putting rocks in front of you, metaphorically, so that they trip on them and fall. I've given them false teachers so that they'll believe lies and be deceived. I'm going to give them things that trip them up because they refuse to repent. Don't forget this about God. God is long-suffering, but it comes to an end. There is an end to it. And the closing part of chapter 6 is another warning. Verse 22 of a nation coming from the north who will devastate Israel, bringing terror on every side. As if God hadn't said it enough. Jeremiah is made to be a tester of God's people like a tester of metals. He concluded that they were all hardened rebels. God tried to refine them through judgment, but the refining efforts were useless. God's attempts to reform the nation had failed, so judgment was inevitable. 
and he brought the Babylonians in. So let's just take a look, a couple of slides to end tonight. The value of repentance. Anyone can say, I love God. But when our hearts are filled with thorns, like a neglected, unplowed field, God is unmoved. I love God. I love God. You can say it. It can be words. You can even go do something that's a good deed. But unless the heart is changed, that's why raising kids, raising children is such a difficult thing. You can, you can teach the behavior. Don't do that. This is wrong. Don't do that. And the kid might do it to, to appease mom and dad. But that doesn't mean they've changed. That doesn't mean the heart's changed. That's what it should be at the house. But, and can we actually go in and change a person's heart? No. That's God's job. Our job is to try to get that, but that's when it happens, is when the heart is changed. Something for you and I to think about in our own lives. I mean, am I doing what I do so I can jump through these rituals and do what pleases God, or am I doing it from the heart? As a preacher, as a pastor, um, I don't particularly care if I teach again. I don't love to teach. Wow, I just can't wait to preach again. That's, if I didn't preach again, that's fine. I mean, I like to have an overflow so I can tell you what I've learned and, and be a conduit through which God speaks. I do like that part, but really I, I, the heart of me and that I have to evaluate is, do I love God? I love God. I tell him that. I evaluate when I tell him that. Do I? What if God did this, this, and this to me? Oh, it's easy to love God when I'm in a good spot, but what if this, this, and this happened? Would I still love God? Yes. Maybe even more. I've told you, I mean, I tell the story uh, when I was down a couple of years ago, I had terrible kidney stones, uh, uh, too much of a supplement I shouldn't have been taking. It wasn't illegal. It's just, you don't know, wash it through those kidneys. They have a way of making stones, boulders in my case, big, huge boulders were coming out. <laughs> anyway, I was on the ground pleading for, yes, pleading for God's mercy. And the whole time I thought, I'm, I'm just going to tell God over and over that I love him. This is my chance. This is the worst pain ever. It's not going away, and I'm just, God, I love you. And really, I was trying to, to appease God, I'll be honest. The more I say this, maybe he'll say, all right, all right, uncle, I'll let you go. But I wanted, to, I, mean, I wanted to tell God that I loved him my worst pain, the worst agony. And I did, and it, and it felt good. It didn't get rid of the stones. It didn't, but it, there's something therapeutic, my friends, to tell God you love him if it's real. And if you have to keep saying it until it becomes real, then by golly, keep saying it. And if you're a man and you don't, you're not used to saying stuff like that, shame on you. You're probably not a believer. Shake that ridiculousness. That's from the devil. Man, woman, tell God you love him. That's where everything flows. What you do and why you do it is out of your love for God. You got a difficult spouse? You love God, you will love your spouse. You'll even take an honor in doing it, or a difficult child. You love God, love that little creation that God made that a demon possesses, but love them anyway, <laughs> which is true in some cases. Hosea used this image, as did Jesus in his parable of the sower, um, where some seed falls upon ground. It just doesn't do anything. There's no change of heart. A baptized body, which somebody who's been baptized, and an uncircumcised heart, no amount of surgery on the body can change the heart. So God demands that we repent of our ways and turn to him from the heart, the circumcision of the heart. 
You get baptized all you want. Get rebaptized three or four times. Rededicate your life, but change your heart. Too many today depend on these rituals. Baptism, Lord's Supper, got confirmed. Are you a Christian? Well, I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. Yeah, but that's not what I asked. I asked if you're a Christian. I asked if you know Jesus. Well, I was confirmed. There's a big difference, isn't there? And though some of you who went through confirmation know that. Some of you went through confirmation, you actually were confirmed in Christ. Praise God. But I haven't met many that are. So what about us in Christ's church? If God searched for one soul by which to restrain his judgments, would he find you? Or does he know you well enough? And he does. He looks into the heart, doesn't he? And we can all look good here and present a good show to each other, uh, even to ourselves. But when God's looking for someone uh, to, to keep from destroying something, would he just look to you and say, okay, that's the one. I'll preserve the world because of that person, because of those people. Does God search for churches for true worship from the passage I quoted a minute ago? Does he look, all right, where am I, who's worshiping me this week? If so, doesn't he search for those worshiping him in spirit and truth? How many does he find? How many churches do you think he finds doing that? How many individuals does he find actually? And I, I remember preaching through this one years ago and, and John and I thought, and I want to be the person that when I wake up that God goes, all right, Lance is awake. Sounds silly, doesn't it? Lance is awake. He's, he's going to begin worship. Now, God is not that way. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. I know that God has no needs, but God will be glorified in his worship. He has to see all the filth and the garbage that's out there, far more so than you and I even know about. When Lance Waldy wakes up, I want him to, to be refreshed in whatever way God might be refreshed, don't you? By what you do, what you don't do. By what you say first thing in the morning. God, I don't really want to be here, but I am. Thank you. I'm going to bring glory to you today. I forgot what we were watching the other day, but um, Cheryl and I were watching it. Someone said something about a, another man. He just said, uh, that man's life was a blessing to me. What was that we were watching, Cheryl? No. That his, his life was a blessing to me, this person was saying. And I thought, man, that's, that's a good person. That's, that's somebody who made good with their life, right? That when they die at your funeral, they say that that person uh, was a blessing to my life. Remember, we had a gentleman died here. His name was Bob, um, Bob Lang. Bob was in his 90s. And, uh, and he always would tell me, I pray for you every day. Yeah, I pray for you every day. And that's all Bob could do at the time. And when he died, I thought, that man's prayers for me are, for me are gone. When my dad died, my, my dad's prayers for me were gone. And I thought, those men were blessings to me. That while they were alive, they were a blessing. Which is why I try to pray for you. I, I don't try, I do. You may not know that. And I, may, I don't even know what to pray for all of you. So I don't need to. I don't need to know every little detail. In fact, I recommend not giving people details. Pray that God does this, and then that, and then get us this, and pray that he does this, and then we need this. Don't pray those things. God already knows you want that or you need that, but God may have, doesn't God normally have something completely different in mind? Then just say, Lord, your will be done. And my prayer now is that I can accept that. Your glory. I pray each day for each one of you that is on my list that God would increase your love for Christ and your desire to know him. That's it. 
That's wisdom, isn't it? To, to pray for God's wisdom. I, don't I can't think of a better prayer for me, for you, for us. And that's what I want him, when I wake up in the morning, that's what I want him to find. And, and I'm saying that not because he does find that with me, but because let him find that with us. Let him visit Harvest Bible Church. That group of people is worshiping me the way I said to be worshiped, through the teaching of my word. Church leaders are to be God's servants unto his people, a blessing unto them. Many, however, live as gifts, and many preachers, prophets, I should say, they live as gifts to themselves, preaching how they choose while rejecting what God has ordained. And the people love it so. They love it so, as was Israel, as is today. And finally, is the United States like Israel? Some people think this. Be careful. And, and they quote passages like, let, let me bring it to you. Is, uh, you probably know where I'm going. Well, is God going to come get us the way he came and got Israel? Second Corinthians, second Chronicles, I should say, seven, eleven. <laughs> All right, here we go. It's uh, and my people, if my people, it doesn't even say if my people, it's and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. That's good. Shouldn't we do that? Nothing wrong with that. Then I will hear from heaven. Okay, good. We're, we're doing good. And we'll forgive their sin and we'll heal, heal their land. How's he going to, is God going to heal the land of the United States? Does God have a covenant with Israel? With Israel? Does he have a covenant in the United States? The passage is only good for a certain time. It, 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 it has a context it's not for the United States to be healed. Is the United States like Israel? Is the United States in the same danger as Israel and Judah? Won't God unleash a pagan nation upon us like he promised to do to Israel? Ha, it's coming. China, North Korea. What's that, Brock? It's happening. Yeah, cyber garbage, whatever. Yes. Do we deserve it? Yeah, but it's, it's not God's wrath per se. It's different. It's an apples-oranges comparison to Israel. Not necessarily. God had a covenant with Israel called the Mosaic Covenant, which they broke, and he divorced them. But no such covenant exists between the United States and God. Now, there was such a covenant. You remember what it was called? Think 1600s. A Mayflower Compact. A covenant with God. Did that become the Constitution of the United States? But is the Constitution of the United States founded on biblical principles? Is it Christian? Is that a covenant between God and us? God does have a covenant with Christ's church to save her, to preserve her, to bring her into his eternal presence. I don't think that, that God is going to send into the church of Jesus Christ the judgments that are coming this way. I think that there are people in the church and false teachers in churches that call themselves a Christian church that will be part of the destruction. But the true church, like the true remnant in Israel, is not under attack. We're not under God's judgment. God took the judgment at the cross. We are not the people of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, 15. That's not us. 
Should we repent of our sins? Sure, keep doing that. But if you're a Christian, you're already doing it. If you're having to be told to, you're not. Well, the churches are falling away, but what I'm trying to distinguish is what's called a church and what actually is a church. But you're right. Yes, true. Old sound churches who once were orthodox, who fell into the hands of false teachers. And really the only thing we're talking about the church is that old building. That's all it is, just a building. I mean, if this, you look away, Harvest Bible Church as we know it today will never cease to be, even when we're gone, because it is what it is. We will always be what we are right now. We may move on and die, and false teachers may infiltrate this building. But Harvest Bible Church moved out with us in that regard. And so it was, so it is today. Those are just old buildings that once housed uh, a group of people worshiping God in spirit and truth. So how is the so-called church doing today? I think that's really the question. Is, uh, we see it today. It's easy to judge everyone else, but really the question is meant for us to ask ourselves that. Each one of us comprises the church. It's easy to point the finger at other people. They're not doing what they should be doing. Go look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and evaluate this. Evaluate yourself. All right. Jeremiah 3 through 6. I will start with 7 next week. I might go through 10, so, and I might not. Um, so, uh, so work on those. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your timeless word. I pray that you would uh, um, bring about a, a true desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. You would find us awake in the morning, whatever time it is we get up, that the first words off of our lips are praise God and the last words are praise God. And everything in between, a living sacrifice offered up to you in faith, uh, people living what we believe. Increase our love for you. Increase our longing to know you. Grant us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 